So thank you, Danny, for uh, having me, for everybody here tonight, just for allowing me to come and to share with you. It's, it's a real privilege uh, to speak the word of God to somebody. And so I don't take that lightly, um, either to be invited or to be allowed to speak uh, what I think God's laid on my heart to you tonight. Um, so I really appreciate it. You know, preaching is serious business, uh, which is why I'm not smiling. Very serious business, right? So if you don't know me, because you don't, I'm a serious person. So if you're like, that guy's talking, I think that might be a joke, I'm not sure, it's a joke, okay? And if you're like, I don't know if that's funny or not, it's funny. So <laughs> go ahead and laugh, you know? So as Denny said, I come from Oklahoma and I'm out here for a couple of days. And um, one thing I've noticed about Californians is sometimes you have a misperception about Oklahoma, right? And I also have some misperceptions about California. And that's fun. So I was kind of wondering, do you guys have like TV out here? Do they like turn on, do they work? Have you guys heard of TV? I really like TV, right? Um, it's pretty cool. You should check it out. Um, one of the things that I like about TV as a visual and as a storytelling medium compared to movies is that on TV, we can spend a long time exploring a storyline. We get to be really close to the characters. We get to experience them over a period of years as opposed to a movie, which is like an hour or two. You know, we can really get deep into their lives. And I really like that about television. Um, One season of TV is about 10 hours of screen time. Most movies are like two or three. And then if you take uh, one season of TV and you make it four or five, like all the good shows get five seasons, that's like 50 hours, right? Now do you feel bad about all that TV you watched, you know? That's a long time, man. You don't have to answer that. But I remember one time I had a friend, uh, a real true friend, right? And he invited me over to watch an episode of Parks and Recreation. You guys might be too holy to watch that show, but I'm not, right? Um, so I'm a few years behind the times, and so I watched the episode from like season two or something, and I had never seen this, and all sorts of crazy stuff was happening, right? They were making fun of this guy, Jerry. I didn't know why they were doing that, right? Tom had some business. I didn't know about Tom. Ron was in a room with a steak. Why does he have a steak in his office? The camera's going all around. I didn't have any idea what was going on. It seemed like a club that I wanted to be a part of, you know, but I wasn't part of that club. I was on the outside. I had just dropped in in the middle, and I couldn't make sense of episode from season two. I didn't have any connection to these people's lives or to their characters or to what they were supposed to represent or to what the showmaker really wanted me to learn from watching this TV. Do you ever think about that? People make shows to try to teach you something, to try to communicate something to you. They do, right? They do it on purpose. Sometimes they fashion inside jokes or they refer back to episodes from years or even uh, seasons past. And you should catch it because they're doing it on purpose, right? So when my wife and I finally uh, got Netflix and moved into the 21st century, we watched this show from the beginning, right? And now I knew why Ron is in his office, and I know why he has steak, and why I want to be like Ron when I grow up, you know? (laughs) I know why Tom wants to start a business, and I could see the gags coming. I enjoyed the people. They were like part of my own family, right? I was no longer on the outside of the crowd. I was on the inside, and I liked it a lot better on the inside. We got up to that episode I had seen years before, and I loved it, right? I was a part of the family, I belonged. So I would contend that the way that we approach the scriptures, and in particular, these gospel accounts of Jesus' life, is a lot the same at how I'm saying we can watch TV, right? These books, uh, in particular, the gospel of Matthew, was written to be read front to back, cover to cover, in a single sitting, right? We call that long form. But you know what? I don't think that's the way most of us choose to experience the Bible, right? We like to find a verse or a passage and kind of drop in for one episode rather than immersing ourselves from the beginning, uh, getting to know the characters and the message, what they call the thought world of the Bible. Rather, we try to cherry pick something quickly, maybe so we can throw it on Facebook and appear super spiritual, you know? Um, 
We want the Bible to be like Twitter, when really we want it, the Bible's asking us to read it like a novel. Take some time with it. We want to experience the Bible like a television commercial, when really it's more like a multi-season drama. It takes time and years and time to experience this. We want to read the Bible just to get through it so that we can check it off our list, when really the Bible wants us to spend time with it, to listen to it, to live it, and to learn from it over the course of our whole lives. You know, that's one reason why here at Three Crosses, I really appreciate that the teaching team is taking time to come through the Gospel of Matthew, to experience the story of Christ in long form. I think that by doing it this way, we can catch some nuance, some detail, and some lessons that studying with and alongside Christ really can bring for us in our lives. Maybe you feel like you've been stuck in Matthew for like eight months and we're only in chapter eight, no end in sight, you know? Uh, But I hope you don't feel that way, right? I hope that you feel like I did about Parks and Rec, that by starting at the beginning, you're falling in love with these characters, you're building the world that Jesus wants to build for you. You're seeing things as an insider rather than from an outsider that joins the party in the middle. And I think the passage at hand today is just ripe for such a look, and I'm excited to share it with you. Um, But before we get to the text, uh, we need to beat around the bush a little bit more. That's how I roll, right? Um, What better way to do that than more TV analogies? Um, Do you ever watch these shows that have like an episode and then they say like previously on NCIS, right? I love that part because they show you a few clips from the most recent episodes, particularly those that are relevant to what you're going to see tonight. They might even give away what's happening, but the producers do it this way because they want you to have certain things in mind as you watch the show, right? Maybe they want to remind you of the latest conflict between two main characters, or maybe some important news that we learned last week. And reading the Bible is a lot like that. Each passage builds on the passages before it. And because those types of things are so important, I want to do that briefly with you a little bit tonight. Um, I was going to have Danny and Pastor Larry act this out on the stage, but they said, man, we got to wait for King David. And, and that's fine. So I'll just kind of recap for you a little bit here verbally. Um, so just as Danny reminded us uh, a little bit ago, we're coming through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've seen the amazing, challenging teachings of Christ. Um, I remember Pastor Danny, I wasn't here, but through the magic of the internet, I heard him say that the, seri- the Sermon on the Mount is not just a sermon or teaching to be admired, but rather a sermon to be lived out, right? And that's true, isn't it? The Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Christ are not just to be admired, but to really be lived out. That seems like Captain Obvious, right? If we follow Christ, we should do the things he says, but it's just not that easy, is it? In fact, this uh, sentiment was so simple, but yet so profound that the crowd's response to Jesus' sermon was, they were amazed, for he taught them as one who has authority and not as one of the scribes. They were amazed at his teaching. And notice here that the focus isn't precisely on what Jesus taught, but on how he taught it. In other words, the teaching revealed to us his character and his nature. Jesus wasn't giving us the way of life in the Sermon on the Mount as much as a list of like do's and don'ts so that we would be sure to earn God's favor by being good children and by avoiding God's punishment by being good, Um, but because this way of living best reflects who God is. And who God is is always right. And so that's the response of the crowd, to be amazed at this type of authority. So Jesus follows up that sermon then with a different series of miracles that prove his authority to make these claims. After all, if you can talk the talk, you should be able to walk the walk, right? And so Jesus' miracle-working ministry here in Matthew chapter 8 is his way of demonstrating visually that he has the authority to make the claims he did in chapter 7. 
He wants to validate for us that he can be in charge, that he knows what's going on, and that he should be listened to. He's not just some self-help guru who wrote a book and self-published it. He has the juice to actually get things done, right? And Matthew 8 shows that to us with a series of miracles. So one of those miracles is the passage at hand for today, which is Matthew chapter 8. And so as we read it through today, I'd like for us to work hard not to rush through it uh, as if it's to be hurried. You know, Danny told me I could preach for like up to four hours, right? So we are going to, we're not going to hurry at all. Um, But one of the challenges of this passage is that it's one of the best love from all of the scriptures. And I'm going to read it to you and you're going to be like, I know that. And I'm going to run through it and you're going to be like, I know that. But sometimes pausing, listening, thinking, the Lord will reveal something new to you from this passage. And that's my prayer tonight. Even if it's familiar, that the Lord will illuminate something new and fresh into your hearts and into your minds. I want us to receive what it's actually saying, both on its own, kind of as an episode, if you will, here in the Gospels, but also as part of the greater conversation of Jesus Christ revealed from Matthew 1 to Matthew 28. In a way that a really good mystery book can reward rereading it, the Gospels can also help us hear a bit more about the incredible symphony that the Scripture as a whole is. So as we read, I want you to listen, and I want you to hear a couple of things. Um, What I'm going to call echoes, like you know you go to a canyon and you hear your voice back, And it's not really your voice, but it reminds you of your voice. Sometimes that's how the scripture sounds like to me. Like you hear something, oh, that sounds like something I've heard before. So I want us to look for a couple of echoes. Um, One thing I want us to look for is any sort of response that Jesus' actions elicit. Right? We already uh, saw what his teaching caused people to think. Let's see what his actions caused people to think. Maybe that's in there. Spoiler alert, it totally is, right? Um, I want us to also look at some echoes that this passage repeats from the Old Testament. Does this story remind you of some other stories from the Bible? And maybe it will, maybe it won't. Maybe it will even remind you of something I'm not gonna highlight here tonight. And that's good, right? That's the way we should be thinking about the scriptures. That's really good. Um, Jesus didn't just drop out of the sky into the New Testament as a beginning. Like he's the continuation of a conversation of God revealing himself to his people over thousands of years. And we call that the Old Testament. So when we see Jesus, that should remind us of what God had already spoken to the children of Israel. Um, So now that I've hyped up this passage for 10 minutes, let's finally take a look here at Matthew chapter 8, uh, verses 23 through 27, and see what it's saying to us today. I'm going to go ahead and read out of the NIV, which is the same Bible, and the pew in front of you, if you'd like to turn at it there. Um, But whatever version floats your boat. So here in verse 23, it says this. It says, Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And Jesus replied, Oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So here in our reading, I asked us to be attentive for those echoes and those reminders and those other texts that are going to kind of bring to bear here what the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us through this passage here today, what Matthew, as the gospel writer, wanted to teach you those many years ago. Um, I've kind of identified three echoes that I'd like to share with you tonight, and we'll call them echoes even though that makes us sound like air traffic controllers. So echo one. I want to uh, illuminate from what I call the world of the text, that first century world that Jesus and his his disciples actually lived in. 
And with this echo that I want us to understand is, is just simply this, that in this life, we will experience storms, but Jesus can overcome the storms. All right, so this is like a Captain Obvious echo again. Um, but in my introduction, I argued that the biblical text in general and this passage in specific should be treated as part of a grander story and a larger movement that God has in mind for us. And one of the pieces that helps tell your story, as your high school English teacher can remind you, is the setting, right? Where does it take place? What this uh, can be really hard is that the gospel world is so different than our world. It's just night and day, right? 2,000 years later, um, it's totally different. So when we read this passage about storms, um, we don't experience storms here in the East Bay very much, right? So our mind quickly travels to the metaphorical storm, right? We're not as familiar with what an actual physical thunderstorm is, or maybe you've probably never felt in danger from one. And this is a legitimate way to understand storms, like they are kind of a figure of speech that they represent tough times in our lives. Um, Pastor Larry kind of took this tack this morning to talk about this passage. I thought he did a really good job, as if he needs my uh, (laughs) stamp of approval. Um, If you're a multi-service, three crosses junkie, you probably were here as well. Um, But it's really good, because we need to be able to handle those storms in our life. There is kind of a metaphor, that lesson. But for the disciples in the boat... At that particular time, I don't think that storm was a metaphor. That storm was like trying to dump them into the ocean and kill them, right? They didn't think of it as a symbol. They didn't think of it as like a literary construction. The storm was a clear and present danger to their lives, right? This is just not something we face uh, day to day in this world. We have to kind of journey and put ourselves in their own eyes, uh, and it's hard to do. Um, As Pastor Larry pointed out this morning, the geography of that lake where they are, we call it the Sea of Galilee. Um, It's kind of in the middle of mountains, and then the storms can sweep in out of nowhere, and they just can take you unawares. It's a very treacherous place to set out and sail. And so this is kind of some uh, of our season-long knowledge of Matthew that it can come in. So we've been hearing about these disciples, and we know who they are. We know these people in the boat. Um, Are they novice sailors, or do they have experience, right? You might remember that Peter, among others, is actually a fisherman by trade, which means he's out on that boat every single day trying to stack that paper, you know. This is his job. He's a fisherman on that particular ocean. He's not the kind of guy to get caught in a situation where he doesn't know what to do with. You know, there are uh, three other disciples, at least, are professional fishermen. And these are guys for whom the Sea of Galilee was their home turf. You know, if they uh, were filming Deadliest Catch Galilee, Peter was the captain, you know. Like, he knows what's going on. Uh, But what is Peter's response? He's terrified. And that implies to me that if even Peter, the pro, is terrified, this storm is bad news. You know, it's not just something tiny. Um, It's serious business. If Peter is pushing the panic button, it's time for everybody to push the panic button, you know? Um, In that day, in that time, and especially in the Old Testament, we read a lot about the Canaanite and their false gods. Um, And one of the gods in the area was a guy named Baal, I say a guy, he's more like a statue or whatever. Uh, but he's the god of the storms, right? He's uh, not too far off of the Norse god Thor, god of thunder. You might've heard of this guy. Maybe you've seen the Avengers. He's got a hammer, right? And so this is who the Canaanites looked to. They looked to Baal, the god of the storms, because these storms were so scary and so terrifying, they thought we need to kind of appease this scary god, right? Um, and so Israelites uh, throughout the Old Testament are turning to worship Baal, and they shouldn't have done that but they were deceived into thinking that this storm or this created thing had power rather than looking to the one that created it and put it into existence. So they have, um, 
They're just looking for anybody to bail them out. And right in here, Peter looks to Jesus to bail them out. So I live in Oklahoma, right? And uh, if you know one thing about Oklahoma, probably it's that we have the Oklahoma City Thunder. But if you know two things about Oklahoma, it's that we have storms that are serious, right? It's tornado country. Um, so it's a, this passage hits a home a little bit more for me. Right In the past uh, five years, there's a town called Moore, Oklahoma, just south of Oklahoma City. And in these past five years, it's been hit with tornadoes twice, uh, completely flattened. We rebuilt it, flattened again. People were going to work, and then they'd come home, and they had no house, no belongings, no nothing. Um, just devastating. Um, and that's what Oklahoma can be like. This is why my mother-in-law is like terrified that I live in Oklahoma because a tornado could at any time descend upon my house and then that was it. But, the, but we live there and we're kind of used to it, you know. Um, like you guys are used to earthquakes. Earthquakes are like the worst. That's terrifying. The earth could open up and I could fall in. No way. <laughs> and you're like, oh, whatever. And that's how I feel about tornadoes, you know. Um, so in Oklahoma, at least, we know about storms that can really, really be dangerous. We need a big God who can provide a big protection. You know, you're probably not from Oklahoma, and even if you are, maybe you haven't been in a situation where you need God to assert his authority over creation on your behalf. Um, But no matter who you are or where you're from or what your circumstances, sometimes we do need a big God to step in because there's a big storm in our life that's really dangerous. Maybe you're dealing with uh, a medical diagnosis that's extremely serious. You need a big God for that, not a tiny one, you know? Maybe you're dealing with the loss of employment right when you signed up for a mortgage. That's a big problem, and you need a big God for that. And maybe you're dealing with the loss of a loved one. You'll need a big God for that too. But no matter what, going through life will bring us trouble. You know, in fact, Jesus promises us that very thing in the Gospel of John. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. And that is like my least favorite verse in the whole Bible, right? But the good news is that it doesn't stop there, right? Jesus finishes his thought. He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. So for the disciples, their problem was a dangerous storm, and Jesus stills it with just one word, right? That gives me confidence that no matter what you are facing here tonight, Jesus can overcome it for you with simply a word. And that's what I think this first echo is teaching us here from the New Testament world. In this life, we will have storms. They will be big, they will be violent, and they will be scary. But Jesus overcomes the storm. The second echo I want to look at is from the, from the Old Testament scriptures. And uh, what I think it teaches us is that God uses storms for our own good, but God is always in control of the storm. God uses storms for our own good, but God is in control of the storm. So would it surprise you to learn that a man on a boat in the ocean with the storm asleep is a device used more than once in the, in the Bible? Now, to be clear, when I say device, that makes it seem like somebody's just making up a story and that these things didn't happen. Um, and this is one place that maybe my TV analogy is unhelpful, like TV's fully fictionalized, or most of it at least. Uh, but the scriptures are not. Like, these things really happened. Jesus was really out on a boat, and there really was a storm, and he really did still it. That's what we believe as Christians, that God's word is true. Um, but the gospel writers, um, they were also kind of like artists, and they wanted to tell you the story of Jesus in such a way that it repeated what actually happened, but that illuminated the maximum possible truth into our hearts. And so I think that Matthew, on purpose tells us this story 
about Jesus asleep in the boat and chooses the details to relate and the details to leave out on purpose to remind us of the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. Have you heard of Jonah? He uh, has a whole veggie tale, so surely you've, you've heard of Jonah, right? Um, his story is in the Old Testament uh, in the book of Jonah, four chapters long. And since I'm already going to go long and cut into your post-service ice cream time, uh, we're not going to read through it, although I recommend it, right? You should, uh, this week, think about reading through Jonah. You'll have to rely on the official buzz hand and paraphrase version that I'm going to recount for you tonight. So Jonah exists, right? And he was called by God to take a message of repentance, healing, and forgiveness to the city of Nineveh, which was not in the nation of Israel. It's in the nation of Assyria. And uh, those, like, aren't like modern-day places, but it's basically Israel's worst enemy. They destroyed the nation in the north, carried everybody into captivity. Um, It was terrible times, right? And then God says, Jonah, go there, preach to them. So it's kind of like if God today called somebody from South Korea who had been imprisoned in North Korea and said, go back and preach to Kim Jong-il that I love him and I forgive him, right? Whoa, no thank you, God. That's the worst, right? Kim Jong-il deserves what's coming to him in my view, right, fictionally here. The history and the bad blood between the nations gives that person pause, right? Um, Not just because of their personal safety, but sometimes we just don't want God to show as much grace as he wants to show, right? Oh, that's, that's the worst, or at least it was for Jonah. And so he ran away. He didn't want to take the message to Nineveh. He thought that they should get what they deserve, which for him was judgment, and they should perish, and they should die from what they did to the nation of Israel, And so Jonah thought, rather than bring them the hopeful message, if I just run away, they won't know to repent, and God will smash them, and it will be perfect, right? So Jonah uh, flees west across the sea, and you'll never believe what happens next, right? You guys seen these things on on Facebook, you have to click on them. You know, this is kind of like my kids. I have uh, four kids, and um, they're the best, uh, but sometimes they're the worst, right? And so... um, (laughs) My oldest son, uh, he sometimes will take toys from my second oldest son, in particular the Legos. There's like a huge property battle waged over the Legos at all times, you know. And then my second son just doesn't want to forgive my older son. It's very hard for him. He'd rather him get into trouble. And that's kind of where Jonah was, you know. Um, But when sailing west, a storm arises. And where was Jonah? He's on the boat asleep just like Jesus was here in Matthew 8. Jonah is sleeping, and he's resting, and he's resigned to his fate. But the tone of Jonah's rest is totally different than the tone that we get from Jesus resting here. So uh, Jonah has decided he's throwing in the towel for ministry, and he'd rather flee away and even die than turn back and do what was right. And so he's sleeping because he just doesn't care anymore. All right? Jesus is quite the opposite. Jesus is resting from days and weeks and months of caring for people and just trying to recharge his batteries. He was sleeping at peace because he's carrying out the perfect will of God. So we have two men on a boat. Both are asleep. One is obedient and one is disobedient. One is resigned to his fate and the other is resilient. But the same thing happens to them both. They each get a storm. What's the deal with that? That's not very fair, right? One person deserves the storm, and the other person deserves something way better. You know, when these things, these storms happen in our lives, sometimes we get into playing that same sort of game, trying to decide if I deserved this storm or not, or if maybe my friend deserved it more than me, right? 
And we try to convince God, perhaps, that since we've been good boys and girls, that he needs to give us good things, right? And of course we mean the things we want, as if God is like a giant mashup of Santa Claus and Baal the storm god, right? We think of storms more in terms of karma. Bad people should get storms, but good people should get good things coming to them. But that's not the message of the scripture here. The message of the scripture is that if you're good or if you're bad, you probably are going to get a storm. If you're good or you're bad, you might be asleep. If you're good or you're bad, and this is the good news, right? If you're good or if you're bad, God is in control of that storm. And he has our best interests in mind. The storm is there for a purpose, and he has our best interests in mind through that purpose. So one of my other favorite stories from the scripture uh, comes from another man in the Old Testament. And and he experienced some storms in his life um, to the nth degree. This guy was named Job. And he is described in the Bible as an upright man and faithful. Um, The best guy in the whole land. And God was so proud of him. If anybody deserved a storm, Job would have been last on the list, right? But God allowed Satan to test him. And Job passed these tests, but... Over the course of 30 chapters of Job and bad things happening, Job gets a little bit fed up. And he challenges God. And he says, God, you need to answer me. I don't deserve this storm. I don't deserve it. And so then God shows up and answers him. And this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. It's in Job chapter 38. And I'm going to read it for us. You can turn there if you, if you want. Um, but God answers Job out of a storm, interestingly. So I want to read verses 1 through 3 and then skip down to verse 22. And from there, I'll probably get carried away and read the whole thing. Um, But I want you to listen to what God is saying about our own abilities to determine the justice or injustice of storms in our own life. And I want you to hear what God is saying about his own power over these storms here in this beautiful poetry. So my copy and paste wasn't working, so I'm going to switch over here to my Bible app, which I, I really like apps and Apple products. But that's neither here nor there. So anyway, Job uh, 38, verses 1 through 3, it says this. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And he said, Who is this that obscures my plans and words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Oh, man, that seems serious. So we're going to skip down to verse 22. And God is asking Job, among these other things, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen storehouses of hail, which I reserve for times of trouble or for days of war and battle? What is the way to go to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, even an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and to make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers these drops of dew? From whose womb comes this ice? And who gives birth to frost from the heavens? When the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth a constellation in its season or lead the bear out with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heaven? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Who gives the ibis wisdom or the rooster understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? 
Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Hashtag dinosaurs. Because that's what God is saying, right? I created everything, and you don't even have a clue. You don't have a clue. And so then at the end, Job says, I despise myself and repent in dust and in ashes. Because what he is reminded of is just kind of those songs that we were uh, singing today, that God knows, God knows everything. God holds the whole ocean in his hand, and we just don't know sometimes. In other words, God sends these storms on the righteous and on the unrighteous for God's own purposes. But whatever the storm and whatever the person, God controls it. God is wise, and he knows why. Even if we as people don't know why the storm has come, God always has our best interest in mind. You know, in these uh, comparisons, I think that Jonah knew exactly why he got the storm, right? He had disobeyed God on purpose and ran away. Bad things were happening to him, and it was a clear message. Job, on the other hand, had no clue why the stuff was happening in his life. God didn't tell him. He didn't know. And that's not fair, right? But God is telling us that actually it is fair because God is always good and God has our best interests in mind. The epistle of James puts it this way in chapter one. He says, to consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So when we think back to Matthew 8 and the storm in the Gospels, I wonder what Peter learned from being on that boat, you know? Maybe it was his experience there with Jesus that led him to trust Christ enough to want to walk out on the water to him a couple chapters away. Or later in the book of Acts to preach at Pentecost and to see thousands saved, thousands come to the Gospel. To over the course of his life follow Jesus and even end up crucified for the sake of Christ. That's what Peter learned from that storm. What is God teaching you in the storm in your own life? That's the man that God formed Peter into, not because he deserved it or didn't, but because God uses these things in each of our lives to fashion us into the people that we want to be. So the next time you face a storm in your life, uh, maybe think a little bit less about whether or not it's fair and whether or not you deserve it, and maybe a little bit more about the identity of your Savior who conquered these storms before and who will continue to overcome them both in this life and in the life to come. As those Old Testament stories remind us, God uses these storms for our own good, but God is always in control of that storm. So God uses these storms in our life for our own good, but he's always in control of the storm. All right, the third echo that I want to share with you tonight, which means we only have 20 more to go, is, uh, uh, <laughs> is from the Gospel of Matthew itself. And what I think the gospel is teaching us here is that the identity of Christ is as one whom even the wind and the waves obey. He is the Messiah. So like two hours ago when I started, I asked you to be looking for echoes in Matthew. And I even gave you a spoiler alert to look for how do people respond to the actions of Christ. And so when Christ taught that Sermon on the Mount, uh, people asked, who is this that teaches with his authority, not as one of the scribes? There's something special about this man. And here in Matthew 8, 27, we see the response from the disciples, which is that they were amazed and they wondered among themselves, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is Jesus indeed? And this is the question that the entire gospel of Matthew is written to answer for you. It doesn't want to leave you wondering who is Jesus. It wants to tell you who Jesus is. 
And so when the disciples ask that one to another, they're inviting you to participate and ask that for yourself. Who do you say that Jesus is? You know, one thing I find a bit ironic about reading the Bible as a uh, 21st century Westerner, way outside the first century, is that it's so easy to make the story all about me, right? I don't know Peter. I don't know this boat. I've never been to the Sea of Galilee. I read the Bible to see what I can get out of it or how I can apply it to my life or what is it teaching me, you know, me, 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 right? So even the, my first two points about storms are all about us, right? Like we can overcome them and Christ is with us and so on. And that's true, right? That is true. The Bible does speak to us. I don't mean to trivialize that. Um, but sometimes we fall into the trap at making the scriptures much more about us when really they are about Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ magnified. So we already talked a bit about how the miracles in Matthew help confirm Jesus' identity as the Messiah. And this passage is no different, right? So when we see that question, who is this? The disciples are asking it and we're asking it too. And in that way we connect uh, with the text. He wants us to see this storm passage not only as a metaphor for how God can help us in our lives, but also as a window into that identity of Jesus Christ. Matthew has shown us Jesus as teacher, as healer, as Christ, as Lord, as Messiah. Jesus is the hero in the Gospel of Matthew, not the disciples, and certainly not us, right? The Gospels are about Jesus. This passage and the Gospels uh, writ large is the crescendo that everything is pointing to, the answer that the scriptures have been reaching for the whole time. The Old Testament points to Christ. Matthew points to Christ. John the Baptist points to Christ. And then it is our job as Christians and as followers of Christ to continue that, that conversation and point to him and to him alone. Do you guys ever watch the show uh, Star Trek? You can't admit it, right? We're all friends. You can be a Trekkie here at Three Crosses. Um, but one of the motifs in Star Trek is that um, over and over in every episode, that, well, they don't go on this in every episode. I'm aware, Trekkies, that it's important to be precise with your Star Trekology. But sometimes they'll go away, what they call an away mission, and they'll go down to a planet. And there'll be like three people that you know and like three people that you don't know, right? And the three people that you don't know are all wearing red shirts. And that's like a clue that those guys might not make it back from the mission, right? I've never seen them before, and the situation is dangerous. They're probably toast, right? And so now it's like a thing that they do. Um, but in uh, the kingdom of God, you know, like, we are kind of the red shirts, right? Um, Jesus is the named character, the one who's a hero, right? The, the message of the gospel isn't about making me great or making you great. It's about making Christ great, you know, the red shirts in Star Trek are there to provide drama to a situation that Captain Picard or Captain Riker or whoever can overcome. It's dangerous. People died, you know, but these named people made it out, and they are the heroes. But the anonymous characters are needed to drive the story home. But we don't really get to know them. We don't really get invested in them, right? And Christians, in the same way, are a bit of a red shirt type of a thing. We exist to proclaim Christ on earth, but it's different than Star Trek, though, because Christ, in his humility and in his glory, has kind of called us alongside him, to fellowship with him. And the gospels even say, to rule and to reign with him, whatever that means. But we have to remember our role. We're not the star of the show, right? We point to the star, which is Jesus Christ. So when we uh, experience a storm and he carries us through, that's not for us to have a cool story. It's for his glory, right? If we experience a story, and we, or a storm rather, and we don't make it through, that's for his glory as well. It's for his sake 
Certainly not for ours. And sometimes that's really hard, you know? Sometimes we want our story to be more exciting, or we want our story to be different, or we want our story to be more famous. You know, but the gospel is serious business, and sometimes Christ even calls you to come and to die. I think about our uh, blessed brothers and sisters in the Middle East right now that are persecuted every day for the sake of the gospel, hunted down and killed. And that's, that's hard, you know? That's hard. That's a storm to, to not know if your kids are going to make it through the day because you believe in Jesus Christ. That's hard. That's hard. We need to pray for them. But their faithfulness in proclaiming the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, right, that's the type of character that I want to be that points to Christ with my whole life, a vehicle that moves Jesus Christ and his identity as Savior, Messiah, Redeemer, and King forward in this earth. You know, following Jesus isn't, isn't safe. Um, as one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, wrote um, of Aslan, his great metaphor for God in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, they said, is Aslan safe? And, and they say, no, of course he's not safe, but he's good. And that's what I think about our Savior as well. It's not safe to follow Jesus. There are storms. There is cost. It is serious business. But he's good, right? He's good. One of the, the best things I think about our Savior, Jesus Christ, is that he never asked us to do anything for him that he didn't do himself already. And I think that nothing expresses this dangerous, sacrificial love of Christ any more clearly than the sacrifice that he made on our behalf on the cross. Uh, Philippians chapter two, um, the apostle Paul writes that Jesus Christ, even though he was God in heaven, he didn't cling to that role. He didn't stay there. You know, heaven is pretty great, right? And if I were Jesus, I might want to stay. But Jesus humbled himself, the scripture says, became the very form of a man, a person like you and me, And not only that, he didn't stop there. He became obedient to death on the cross. So if Christ was obedient to death and he wants us to do the same, we can can do that. He did it for us first. The same man that we've seen teach the crowd's wisdom, the same man we've seen do miracles, overcome sickness, uh, here overcome the elements, even demonic powers as we'll see next week, this same man humbled himself and laid him down for us when nobody could make him to do it. When the disciples here in Matthew chapter 8 ask, what manner of man is this? The answer is that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God, come to earth in his incarnate form to show us what God is like. And after living a perfect and sinless life, laid that life down as a sacrifice for our sins, for yours and for mine. And so I challenge you here today, if you don't remember anything about the echoes or any analogies or anything from this passage, please don't leave today without answering this question for yourself. Who is Christ for me? What manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? What must I do in response? What will you say to that question? How will you respond? I don't know. I can't know, right? Danny doesn't know. He can't possibly know. But Jesus is asking you to do something. What is that? You can listen. You can hear. And I hope that you'll respond. Um, One of the ways that we can respond to the sacrifice of Christ is by participating in the sacrament of communion. Uh, And we do that here, I guess, weekly. This is my first time, and maybe it's your first time, and you're welcome to join us at the table as well. Um, We believe that communion is a sacrament uh, for those that believe in Christ, and it's a picture of the body and blood um, that Christ gave on our behalf. 
On the night that Jesus was betrayed by his friends, the very worst night of his life, and he knew it was coming, right? He knew he was going to die in the worst way possible. He decided the thing he wanted to do before that is to have dinner with his friends. These very same people that he was in the boat with, these very same people that just couldn't get it continually through the gospels. He wanted to celebrate with them, right? And the, and the, in the same way tonight, when we celebrate at the table, we believe that Jesus Christ wants to celebrate his death and resurrection with you. And so when we take the body and we take the cup, we remember that Jesus Christ died for us. He poured his life out for us and he invites us into fellowship with him. And in doing this, we proclaim his death until he comes. What a great privilege to participate with the death and resurrection of Christ. What, what a privilege to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. And what a privilege to be able to pray and to worship and to experience this great thing that we call the Christian life. What a privilege. So when we come, let's not come as a, as a habit or as just something that everybody else is doing, but really ask Christ, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? Whatever that is, I pray that you'll do it. Um, I'll be down here. Danny will be down here if you want somebody to pray with you, um, maybe a friend that brought you. Um, but whatever it takes, don't leave here without asking yourself the question, who is Christ and how will I respond? So um, I'm just gonna pray to close. And, and then after that, I think we're gonna have some more music and, and just come down and, and serve yourself at the communion table as you feel led. Um, but I pray that you will. And I pray that you will respond to Christ.